to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am sitting with Joel Rose, CEO and founder of NewClassrooms.org. Welcome, Joel. Thanks, Rhea. Great, great to be here. So, Joel, tell us a little bit about yourself and what is New Classrooms? Sure. Well, I'm a former teacher. I taught fifth grade for three years in Texas, and I remember on my very first week, I realized I had students in my class on a second grade level, students in my class on an eighth grade level, and everything in between. My principal gave me a set of fifth grade textbooks and told me good luck. And that is the challenge that I think teachers, not only in the U.S., but all across the world, are faced with each day. Mm-hmm. And so what is the solution you came with? So our organization has developed a different learning model called Teach to One Math. And the way it works is if you imagine you're, let's say, in seventh grade and you're reading first period in room 206, you have PE in the gym, second period, third period, you have math. And instead of walking into room 105, you walk into a big open space with lots of different stations. In some stations, kids work with teachers. In some stations, kids work with software. In some stations, kids work with one another. And when you walk in, you look up and you see a big TV monitor. And you see your name and you see which station you're supposed to go to. So you might spend the first 30 minutes working on linear equations with a teacher and 16 other kids at station number two. The next 30 minutes working on linear equations in a peer-to-peer activity, let's say, at station number six. And then the last 10 minutes, you take an online quiz called an exit slip, and then you're off to social studies. And then what we do is take the data from that quiz and create a new schedule for you for tomorrow based on how you did today. So it's kind of individualized learning at scale. Correct. And so what is the role of teachers in this model? The role of teachers is to teach. The live instruction, teacher-led instruction, is probably the most important modality that, that we have. Mm-hmm. But what's different in that is that when the teacher is teaching 18 kids factoring trinomials, she knows that each of those students has already mastered all of the predecessor skills to learn that skill, and none of them already know it. So we've changed the context that the teacher is teaching in so that they can be more successful. So it sounds like the data allows teachers to be more targeted and precise in their, in their direct teaching instruction. Exactly. To really focus on the quality of their, of their teaching because they know students who they're working with are ready to learn what it is that they're providing instruction on. One of the things that I, as I was researching, is, is that you, New Classrooms, has a press release about the iceberg problem. So I'm just curious, and I'm sure my, my listeners are curious about it as well. What is that, and, and what are you doing to address the issue? Sure. So the iceberg problem is, is one of these sort of unintended consequences of, of legislative efforts that emerged in, in Washington. Basically, the way that federal and now state accountability systems work is if you're in sixth grade, you learn a bunch of sixth grade material, and then you take the sixth grade test, and the school's accountable for that. Then you go to seventh grade, learn the seventh grade material, take the seventh grade test, the school's accountable for that. And that's how the system works. The challenge is that we have a lot of students who walk into sixth, seventh, and eighth grade that are really operating on a third, fourth, or fifth, or sixth grade level. They have these gaps. They have this unfinished learning back from elementary school. And because teachers feel the need to teach what's going to be on the test, they basically focus on teaching the grade level material. And then as a result, students fall further behind because they haven't quite had those critical foundational gaps ever properly addressed. 
And so it's sort of, they're addressing what they can see, but there's this whole sort of gap underneath the surface that they're unaware of. Exactly. They're just teaching the grade level material, but they can't quite, they don't have the visibility to address the fact that a student may still struggle with multiplication or fractions or some key foundational skills in math that are necessary for them to actually ultimately succeed with grade level content. You know, there's a little bit of a deviation, but I, I'm reflecting on my own math education. And I just remember, by and large, being quite traumatized by my math education. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the ways in which math is tradi- traditionally taught in this country. Sure. I mean, you're not the only one. A lot, of, a lot of people, they may come to a point where they're struggling in math and they say, well, I'm just not a math person. What oftentimes is really going on is for whatever reason, they missed a key foundational skill. Maybe they were absent. Maybe they just need a little bit more time, whatever the reason. And now math is getting harder because you need that foundational skill to learn something more advanced. So everything now seems more difficult. And it's easy to just jump to, well, I I must just not be a math person, when really what's going on is you just haven't quite mastered some key foundational skill that would enable you to be much more successful with math. Do you think, too, and and obviously this is a separate issue, but I've thought a lot about the fact that as a country, we probably also don't have mathematically inclined folks teaching math and having that deep content knowledge, especially in the early grades. Would you agree with that? I mean, there is some data that says, particularly in the early grades, teachers are less comfortable with math than they are in, in English language arts. It's not universally true, but there is some data to support that. And then what ultimately may end up happening is if you're in an elementary school class, the teacher may not focus or dedicate as much time to math as they would in other subject areas. So that definitely that definitely can happen. So it sounds like, as far as the iceberg problem, your technology and your strategy is really about shoring up where kids really need much more practice and sort of foundational mastery and then being able to challenge them appropriately and differentiate a classroom appropriately. Is that right? Our model is one way of addressing the iceberg problem. It's not the only way. Mm-hmm. But what, what we do in our program is if you're in seventh grade, we pick a seventh grade target skill. But then if you have any gaps from sixth grade, from fifth grade, from fourth grade that you need in order to actually succeed with that seventh grade skill, we put that on your personalized curriculum as well. So everything Mm -hmm. is in service of getting to grade level, but it allows you to sort of bridge from where you are to where you need to be. That's great. And Joel, how many students are on the platform nationwide? We're serving roughly 35 schools and 9,000 students. Wow, that's amazing. So just to switch tack a little bit, because a lot of my listeners, some are in education, but a lot of them are in nonprofit more broadly. And so I'm just really curious, as you think about from where you started and where you are today, what have been some of your greatest lessons around scaling and particularly scaling on a national level? It's a great question. So we, we sort of entered this with a, with a theory that what's been missing in K-12 is actually R&D, actually the design of new models that can transform student outcomes really not a lot of organizations that were trying to play the long game. Everyone's sort of focused on the short game. And so what we saw are there are some products out there that can scale, but generally those products assume the same delivery model of one teacher, 30 kids in a room, and they're just sort of tools that go on top of that. We, our board, our funders have basically sort of agreed that there'll be a day, one day to scale, but we did not, we've not made scale an immediate priority. We've made driving results 
a priority and really sort of cracking the code on what it would take to really enable all kids to get to college and career readiness. And I think by having the, the freedom and the opportunity to really play the long game, ultimately that's, that will pay off, but, but it, it has required sort of a different way of thinking about scale in proportion to what, what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And so what are kind of the different ways that you've been thinking about it? Because I'm dipping my toe into the ed tech space, and I think that feels accurate to me, which is the, the sort of spectrum of tools that are embedded in our traditional models of learning and instruction. And then there's kind of on the other extreme, I would say, tools that are designed to, in a sense, replace teachers. And so it sounds like there's a there are lots of different strategies in between. And how are you thinking about that? I mean, the way we think about it is what's required is a different delivery model. Mm-hmm. So the model we have today, putting one teacher, 30 or so kids in an 800 square foot room with a textbook, this has been around for over 150 years. And so many efforts around innovation and around reform have just assumed that that is, that is the fix. It's what some researchers call the grammar of school, the sort of ways of doing school that you wouldn't even recognize it if it weren't in place. And what we're trying to do is really challenge the grammar school to ask ourselves, given where we are in the 21st century, given all that we know about how kids learn, what teachers do best, what technology can do best, how do we completely reimagine the classroom experience to put Mm -hmm. every kid on a path to college and career readiness? So why is it, I mean, I think that there's a, an assumption out there, whether it's true or not, that education and educators really resist innovation and technology. Would you, how would you react to that assumption or that statement? Well, I have not found that to be as true as people think, but what I have found to be true is what teachers, many teachers resist is one more thing for them to figure out how to integrate into their classroom. I remember when I taught mm-hmm. And one day, there was a knock on the door, and I said, Mr. Rose, your three computers are here, and here's some software. You know, good luck. And some mm-hmm. I had to figure out how to, like, integrate those. I put three kids on the computer. I'd worked with 25. One kid finished early. He's now missed half the lesson. One kid was upset because she missed her turn the day before. Can she go on the computer? One kid couldn't log in. Like, it didn't kind of fit within the workflow of, like, what really happens in a teacher's day. And I think what the job of a teacher is just so challenging to begin with when policymakers just sort of say, oh, here's some technology, here's some software program, go use this, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It actually makes an, an already difficult job in many ways even harder. Mm-hmm. That really resonates with me because I think we often think of technology as, as the answer, but it, it's really just a tool like any other. And it has to be done thoughtfully and with intention in order to use it properly. Right. So just to switch tasks a little bit, so you you started as a classroom teacher and you're now building the you know, well you've built this organization and you're sounds like you're trying to really build some culture change in schools around integrating technology to improve outcomes for students and I'm just wondering a little bit about how you made the transition from a classroom teacher to a national CEO. What were the hard things about that? Well, I think there were a few steps along along the way to get there. After I taught I went to law school and then I worked for a company that was involved with managing schools around the country. And I really got to learn from some great leaders, you know, on the operational side, on the financial side, on the talent side. And it just allowed me to sort of understand a lot more about what it takes to, to be successful within and ultimately to lead a successful organization. And then I spent almost five years working for the New York City Department of Education. 
overseeing human capital. And so from there, I got to really see, at least in one district, how the sausage is made to truly understand how how school districts work from the inside. And that gave me some invaluable perspective on the kinds of solutions that could be impactful. And I think the combination of both working for an education company and for some great leaders, and then also sort of working on the inside in a school district really helped to give me some preparation for what it would ultimately take to lead an organization in the education space. So what are some of the biggest lessons learned? On the journey? On the journey and, you know, running your organization right now. Well, I think the first is that this is an incredibly challenging marketplace to succeed in, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit, that there are a number of forces that resist change from any number of directions. I've got a piece coming out in AI in a couple of weeks that goes into detail on what some of these forces are. But if you're if you're looking, if you just sort of see the first page of the PowerPoint, you go, oh, it's an $800 billion industry that hasn't been disrupted by technology, but the next frontier, let's go there. It's a lot more challenging than you might think. And some of the pattern recognition that may apply in other sectors just don't apply in the same way in K-12. And we can argue they should or they shouldn't, but they really just don't right now. Right. That, I think, is an important lesson. I think the second important lesson, and frankly, the one that I've been the most surprised by, is that there has just been, I think, a tremendous amount of groupthink into what's best for kids. Even this example of sort of policies around grade level, grade level material, like that is sort of the conventional wisdom across, you know, most states and many districts. All kids get grade level content all the time and teachers need to have high expectations for kids. And, you know, just challenging at least some of the basic underpinnings of that and saying maybe there's another way to get all kids where we want to get them that doesn't sort of follow that playbook has been an important endeavor for us, but one that I have sort of been surprised that at least initially some of the resistance to that, although I think that's begun to subside a little bit. And so, you know, as a lifelong teacher and educator, I'm curious if you feel like you've been able to apply any of the lessons learned in the classroom to the way that you lead and manage your team. We certainly try to, and I certainly try to, you know, just as, just as our model is focused on meeting kids where they are, I think that good leaders and good managers try to meet their team members where they are and help to coach them to where they, where they need to be. You know, there is both in, in educating and in, and sort of adult learning and coaching. It's part art, part science. And I think trying to find the right balance between those two things is something that we try to do in, in both domains, internally and in the offering that we've, that we've designed. But, but that is, I think, the, the challenge really for any leader to, to sort of figure out how to get the most out of, out of their team members and make sure that they're sort of deeply invested in what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So here on Nonprofit Lowdown, we try to give listeners an actionable item or an actionable tip. So is there one tip, practice, tool that you feel has been really invaluable to you as you lead and manage your team forward? I think the work that we've done in our leadership team to align around a set of core values and an overall mission and a theory of change have been critical. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those things were sort of in my head a little bit and we talk about them. And I was like, I'm not so sure it really, it's worth the sort of time and energy to like be so explicit about them and to sort of agree on the wording when real stuff's got to happen. We shouldn't be sitting in conference rooms like debating about commas and periods. But I, I do think that the, 
the time we invested in getting explicit alignment around those things has actually helped to build conviction around those things. And that has sort of helped in many ways with the, with the momentum and the, and the overall management of the organization. It's an interesting point because actually I'm working with a number of clients now that are asking a lot of the same questions around distilling core values for the organization. So can you talk a little bit about the process that you went through? Was it something that was, as you say, in your own head that you put down on paper or was there a more a collaborative process with your team around identifying common values? It was quite, it was quite collaborative. You know, we went through a process with our whole team with our leadership team, with my co-founder and I, sort of circled back, had people give feedback. So we went round and round over several months to sort of generate those, we call them core operating principles. I think one of the one of the things we sort of ran into is sort of the value versus the operating principles and how to sort of think about those in, in different ways. That was something that emerged from the collaborative process. But in general, we, were, we tried to be collaborative, as clever as we could. What ended up happening, though, is it did take several months. And over that time, because we were a growing organization, lots of people came into the organization, some people left the organization. And so at a given point in time, you may have you know, sort of a fraction of the team that was involved for that process to begin with. Mm-hmm. So something to sort of just keep in mind about the, the benefits of taking your time with that, but also some of the drawbacks. So as you're talking, I mean, obviously, core values or core operating principles have a very strong correlation to what we would call the culture of an organization. And so I think historically we thought about hiring for culture and now the conversation has shifted to hiring, not for culture, but rather what would be additive to the culture. And I'm wondering if you have any comments about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like the additive to the culture and I can think of some, some real examples in the organization where, where that's happened. I think what, where we have, where we sort of struggled a little bit is the balance between the culture and the expertise. And so sometimes an organization could think we really need someone who knows X because we don't really know how to do X and we need to have an expert who knows X. And I think what we've learned in some cases is that an expert who can do X hasn't necessarily done X in this context. And the, the rules of this sector are just so different. And what we're trying to do is so unique. What I think we generally find is that Oftentimes, the generalists who are deeply committed to the mission and who can play lots of different roles over time end up being, over the longer term, more successful than, than sort of some of the specialists that are brought in for specific tasks. This isn't always true. It's not true in every department. And you need mm-hmm. specialists in some areas for sure. But I think we've been doing a lot of thinking a little, a little bit about sort of the general specialist dichotomy and, and its impact on culture. Mm. And so you were overseeing talent at the DOE, and I'm just wondering if you have any general principles that you can share with my listeners about how you think about hiring and selecting and bringing people onto a team so that it is a cohesive, functional team. Yeah, I mean, I would say on the on the hiring side, we try to hire much more for values alignments and for sort of upside capabilities and for ability to contribute in many ways than we do necessarily for a particular skill set. There's a slight exception to that in technology because you, you do need to know how to code. You do need to know. <laughs> it's tough to generalize your way through some roles like that. And obviously in finance, you have to. So there are some there are some exceptions, but I think in general, the sort of high upside values alignment become critical. And then I think that we have, we're certainly not perfect by any stretch, but we've we've done a lot more in terms of the onboarding process to make sure that 
people feel invested and engaged and are sort of set up for success. And, you know, that, that time you spend on the front end in the first, you know, one to three months, where we can kind of resisting the urge to have someone contribute right away from day one, which they want to do. They want to show that they're adding value. But in many cases saying, it's okay, I really need you to learn and understand this is the time you'll have to really deeply understand how the model works and how the market works and how, how our organization works. And if you sort of let folks just sort of go to town too soon without leveraging that time properly, you just sort of never get that time back. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to someone recently, and she was citing some statistics about people making a decision about whether they're going to stay within the first six months. And so that onboarding period becomes critical. Very much so. Very much so, for sure. So last question for you, and I'm just going to ask you for a little bit of candor and vulnerability. Would you be willing to share with us something that you would consider to be a failure in the organization or in, you know, a leadership failure and what you've learned from it? So how much time do you have? I don't know how much time we have. <laughs> there are plenty. You know, I would say the biggest has probably been more on the strategic side where we sort of went into this thinking that if we could show the kinds of results on tests that truly measure learning growth, that that would unlock a whole lot of demand for what we do because no one really is able to show those kinds of results. And we sort of went down this path at a time where there was lots of transition. This was sort of right around when Common Core was becoming a thing. And so the, there were some tests coming out and some tests coming in. And, and so we sort, of, we sort of caught that wave. We thought this is what, a great opportunity to, to sort of go down this path. And what ended up happening was that school said, what we care about is the state, are the state tests. And if you can't really aim at showing results in the sixth grade test or the seventh grade test, it's just not as compelling to us. And so that just has created a lot of misalignment between what it is that we're trying to do and what it is that the market is saying it wants, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we were fully prepared for that or our team was fully prepared for that or our key stakeholders were fully prepared for that. And maybe maybe it's just one of those things you learn with, with real life experience, but um, mm-hmm. it's really forced us to try to figure out where the line is. If you're just going to be so true to what it is you think is best, but no one else who matters is kind of buying what you're saying. You can be right, but you can lose. Right. So I think this, this sort of challenge of like, how do we win? And how do we yeah. not come off what we think matters and what will take to drive impact, but not totally sell out to just sort of being kind of a run-of-the-mill product? You know, I think that we didn't, we didn't quite grapple with that question enough in the early years. You know, I think this is really common. It's a really common theme to not just with the tech space, but also more broadly education. And, you know, product market fit is important. I, I mean, I definitely have heard folks who are trying to launch nonprofits, it seemed very niche to me. And I'm like, that's interesting. But how is that going to appeal to a larger audience or a larger donor base? If like, you know, you want to deal with like red pandas in this like very small area of China, just as an example. So the other thing too that occurs to me is a a friend of mine said this to me just yesterday. She said, you can be right or you can be useful. (laughs) And I've taken that to heart. Yeah, I understand. Now look, there there are there are definitely in the nonprofit world some some donors that are wanting to feel good about their investments and they may be really into red pandas and all they want (laughs) is for someone to like, you know, help them achieve their their life vision around around supporting red pandas, and you can, you know, totally 
contribute in that way. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think if you're sort of trying to think about sort of six scalable systemic impact, you can't just focus on, on the being right part. I really appreciate your time. This is great talking to you and hopefully we can do it again soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye.